Hey, it's Mike McEntee here on AM950. Happy Tuesday to you. Hey, coming up on the show today, we're going to talk about guns, but a little bit different take on it. Guns, the argument is that we have a constitutional right to bear arms to prevent tyrannical governments. But is that what really happens? We're going to dig into the data. Also, is the Minnesota Republican Party running towards or away from Donald Trump when it comes to the race for governor? We're going to talk to our favorite political commentator, Jack Rice, about what Tim Pawlenty's candidacy means for the Republican Party. And as the legislature hits crunch time with a lot of important bills yet to pass, what are some of the not-so-important or just plain dumb ones that have been offered? We'll talk to Mike Mullen from City Pages. But first, let's talk about something that happened on the Minnesota House floor last week. Representative Sarah Anderson, a Republican, who introduced language into the redistrict bill that would allow lawmakers to use data other than the census to redraw lines. That makes it easy to gerrymander. She got on a rant last week when it was proposed that a bipartisan panel with retired judges draw the lines instead of the legislature. So we just had a new judge put in place, the former Speaker of the House, Paul Thiessen. Would he be considered nonpartisan as a retired judge? He'd certainly be eligible, right? Because there's no requirement here that says. So you would have a former Speaker of the House potentially serving on this commission who raised money for the Democrat Party year after year when he was Speaker of the House. He campaigned against Republican candidates throughout the state of Minnesota. Heck, he even ran for governor, lambasting all Republicans across the state of Minnesota. And he's going to be in charge of our independent commission? How about the other four people that are going to be appointed? I can't think of a single citizen that is nonpartisan. I think that term is just ridiculous. There's not a single person out there that's nonpartisan. Everybody has political views. Everybody has a political ideology. So to think that you're going to have something that is going to be pure as snow, that is not going to be happening. And clearly, California is a prime example where this does not work. They used the system, they corrupted it, and they made it exactly the opposite of what you purport it would do. Now, Anderson got a lot of things wrong in this speech. Let's let's go through some of them. And she was corrected by other members on the House floor. But first, it's a bipartisan commission, not a nonpartisan commission that would be drawing these lines. And yes, some people, believe it or not, are actually nonpartisan. But as far as former Representative Paul Thiessen being able to be on this commission because he's now a Supreme Court judge, if she had read the actual bill strictly prohibits former party leaders from being on the commission. So you heard her use the term Democrat Party. Let's talk about that for a moment. That is a slur. The origins of this slur vary. It may be meant to imply that the party really isn't sufficiently democratic in the general sense, or it just might be a petty insult. It's been going on for quite some time. And it was going on for some time on the House floor the uh, last week. Representative Dave Pinto Having heard this over and over, he's from the Democratic Party, from 
and he was hearing this from Anderson and her Republican colleagues, well, he decided to speak up. Uh, Mr. Speaker, members, uh, I'm a member of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, or DFL, um, and I want to wait till after the vote on this, but I've heard a number of times my party referred to as the Democrat Party. I am a Democrat, uh, but uh, I respectfully request that my party be referred to by Democratic Farmer Labor, DFL. If you really want to say Democratic, you can, although I'm real proud of the Farmer Labor Party of my party's name, but I prefer the party be referred to by its proper name rather than the Democrat Party. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Members. Now, Representative David Bly, also a Democrat or a member of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, decided to join in and pointed out that this slur has been going on a long time, reaching way back. You know, Harry Truman, a former uh, president, uh, irritated by hearing uh, Republicans call his party the Democrat Party, the Democrat Party, said, um, you know, from now on, I'm going to call you the Republican Party. Republican Party. <laughs> Some people would say you should be the Republican Party, but, you know, we have fun with these things. So remember, when someone calls it the Democrat Party, whether they know it or not, it's a slur. Correct them. Well, coming up next on the show, keeping guns to keep the government at bay. It's one argument gun advocates use to push back against gun violence prevention legislation. But does that argument really hold any water? We'll talk about it next on The Mike McEntee Show. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. When we get into debating gun violence, you'll hear about the Second Amendment, right to bear arms, because it's about freedom. Some will say we have the right so people can overthrow the government if it becomes tyrannical. Well, joining me to examine both those claims is Think Progress reporter Casey Michelle. Casey, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to have you on here. You've done some examination of, um, you know, I, I, I don't care to call these myths, but these are reasons that people say that they support uh, guns and the, the supposed benefits that they have. Uh, you, you've, you've looked at this. Is it is it a key ingredient to democracy as a, a freedom, as much of them claim? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right that there is this idea, this theory, this notion among uh, many in the U.S. and across the state of Minnesota that, that guns and civilian gun ownership especially is one of, if not the key ingredients to uh, uh, staving off tyranny and to maintaining uh, the democracy that we have come to know and love here in the U.S. Uh, it's an understandable idea in the sense that it's a little bit tougher to take away theoretically democratic norms and principles from those who are holding heavy weaponry but the data just doesn't back it up. Uh, I, I crunched some numbers for Think Progress recently in my feature story that went up today, looking at uh, civilian gun ownership rates internationally and the relationship that those civilian gun ownership rates rates have to democracies and to democratization. And the relationship isn't isn't there. It's negligible. It's not that. Uh, it's the reverse of the notion uh, that high civilian gun ownership rates lead to democracy. It's just that there's no relationship whatsoever. We have democracies with high ownership rates. We have dictatorships with high ownership rates. We have democracies with low gun ownership rates and dictatorships with low gun ownership rates. It doesn't seem to play a role whatsoever. Well, let's back up here. How do you define democracy? And are you, uh, 
are you doing comparison here between the U.S. and other countries or uh, states within the U.S.? How, how did you do this? Sure. So the data that I looked at was twofold. For the civilian gun ownership rates, I took data from an organization called Small Arms Survey, which is the uh, uh, a primary um, uh, a survey organization that looks at numbers like uh, civilian gun ownership rates internationally. And so we looked at the numbers that they have for uh, gun uh, uh, guns per 100 civilians, so guns per capita. Uh, unsurprisingly, the U.S. is at number one uh, uh, internationally. Uh, number two is Yemen, which, again, obviously is not a democracy and is currently undergoing civil strife. So that's how we looked at the gun ownership numbers. For democracy numbers, I looked at Freedom House, which, full disclosure, I've worked with in the past. Uh, every year, Freedom House puts out a democracy index, looking at countries uh, and scoring them by uh, political rights and civil liberties, and then putting out a final democracy score for them. So I looked at not just the numbers that Freedom House put out in 2018, but numbers that Freedom House has put out since 2008, so a decade's worth of democratization numbers. And I looked at the relationship between uh, the small arms survey gun ownership rate numbers and Freedom House democracy numbers over the past decade. Uh, and again, as the numbers bear out, there is no uh, observable relationship between countries that are either democracies or non-democracies, or even countries that have undergone notable democratization over the past 10 years. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, as just a, as a few case studies, uh, Tunisia, the country that sparked the Arab Spring back in 2011, actually has the lowest uh, rate of civilian arms of any country. Uh, as we just mentioned a moment ago, Yemen has the second highest rate of gun ownership of any country, obviously mired in civil strife right now. Uh, another top 10 country is uh, Saudi Arabia at number seven, has the seventh highest rate of civilian gun ownership in the, in the world. And I don't think anyone would call Saudi Arabia uh, a functioning democracy at this point. So when we talk about um, democracy, I think we're talking about political freedom. I know this wasn't the point of your study, but when we it's to give people a point of reference here. When we talk about uh, democracy, democracy here in the United States and where we rate and having political freedom, where does the U.S. kind of fall on that scale? Are we, I assume that we're up on the top of the end of the scale, or is it, as we've seen here with freedom of the press and other things, that we're down like 43rd? Uh, you're, you're correct. Uh, for, as it pertains to some of the recent numbers that came out for media freedoms, the U.S. is in the top third or so. I think it was at number 43, number 45. Uh, according to Freedom House, the U.S. is still rated as a free and fair democracy. But uh, as we've seen in, in many facets and factors over the ten, last 10 years, and this is reflected in the Freedom House score, the U.S. no longer has the highest scoring possible. Uh, uh, Freedom House fully uh, uh, free and fair democracies are at uh, number one. The lowest for dictatorships are at number seven, so it's a one-to-seven scale. The U.S. for years was at number one, uh, was ranked number one uh, in its score, but a couple of years ago it was downgraded, and it's now 1.5. Not a big downgrade, but a notable one nonetheless in a country that uh, many would still consider the, the bastion of liberal democracy across the world. Certainly a concerning trend, and one that, again, given the declining democracy scores in the U.S., flies in the face of the notion that a high civilian gun ownership rate will maintain that democracy. You know, the U.S. still has the highest rate in the world, but we're seeing its democratic scores decline uh, and continue to decline as we move forward. 
Well, let's talk kind of about the other reason behind this, and it's it's said but unsaid, which is, and uh, some of the fringe groups I think say it louder than others, which is this is to prevent the government from, uh, you know, being tyrannical or basically doing things we don't like, and that's called oppression. And when I look at this and I look at at uh, what's going on here, the majority of gun owners are white males. I think that's mm-hmm. what the statistics show. Yeah. Isn't this really to prevent oppression against the white majority in, or the the white, it's becoming less the majority, but the, the white males in the United States? I think that there is an argument to be made that much of the concern that we have as it pertains to uh, 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 potential gun reform, some of the opposition we see to that stems not from any kind of uh, a logical or data-driven background, but more so is part and parcel of something we've seen really come to the fore over the past few years, really come to the fore with the Trump campaign and now the Trump presidency. And it's this concern, this fear of a rising multiracial society in the U.S. that no longer sees white Americans, especially white male Americans, as the preeminent uh, uh, demographic, as uh, uh, kind of the first among equals, so to speak, but sees uh, uh, white males, along with every other uh, demographic, on an even playing field. And I I think it's an understandable concern insofar as, for many, they see that as a a net loss rather than or or a zero-sum arrangement, rather than what it is in reality, which is a a sort of a rising tide lifting all boats. And I, I think this commentary and these concerns that we see out of so many uh, gun rights proponents, gun reform opponents, stems absolutely from this broader concern that white males in the U.S. are losing their perceived place, and they'll actually have to begin, we will actually have to begin working that much harder, just as everyone else does, to earn our keep and earn our place uh, and support ourselves and our families. I don't think this is a new development because I, I think back to some of the first gun controls that were passed in California. There, you had a Republican government out there that was very much opposed to that until the Black Panthers said we're going to start carrying open carrying guns, and suddenly laws were passed against it. I think this is it, it's been around for a while. It is uh, rooted not just in uh, you know the the whole idea of we want liberty, but it's also we don't want other folks to uh, be able to pose a threat to us that we consider threatening. Yeah, uh, Mike, you're, you're exactly right. When 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 Bobby Seale and Huey Newton showed up in Sacramento, and Governor Reagan realized, oh my goodness, they're taking advantage of these laws that we never thought they would take advantage of. Now is the time to push gun reform legislation. You hit the nail on the head. This is not something that is brand new. This is not something we haven't seen before. Uh, It's just that there is now a time in which it is so much more pronounced, I suppose, given who we have in the White House, given the current state of uh, 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 right-wing and far-right media voices. uh, It's that much more pronounced right now, and I, I, I am that much more concerned about it, because you do see these voices, you do see these characters and, and, and actors who are coming forward and saying, our guns or nothing, uh, our guns or no democracy, our guns or no country. Um, I don't know how this will manifest itself, I don't know how this will, will end, um, but there are certainly concerning strains on parts of the right and the far right here in the U.S., uh, that point to guns and their gun ownership rights and the supposed opposition uh, that it provides for, for uh, opposition to tyranny 
as the be-all and end-all uh, of their of their being, of their citizenship. It is their guns or nothing, and I, I don't know how it ends. There's always been this romanticized storyline about that how the United how patriots here in the United States uh, citizens uh, grabbed their own guns and took aim at the British and that's how we won that's how Texas was able to gain its independence all of that is you know predicated or kind of gives background to well we will do that again if we need to Let's examine, if you can here, just real quickly, those two stories I just mentioned, how true those really were, that that's what led to that. That was the, the main force. And two, could, could uh, you know, could, could citizens with guns really fight against our U.S. government? Sure. Uh, as I mentioned in, in the story on, on, on Think Progress, it, you know, there is this wonderful story that we tell ourselves. Americans tell themselves, you know, I lived for years in Texas, and I saw this play out down there as well. The Texans mm, me too. tell themselves about their own revolution uh, here in the U.S., about the American Revolution. It's a wonderful t- a tale. It's a wonderful myth of a you know, kind of citizen uprising, a citizen brigade uniting against a foreign tyranny, or, or in that case, at, at that time, a domestic tyranny, and taking their guns and taking their weaponry and overthrowing the crown, overthrowing Santa Ana, and declaring their independence. Again, it makes for wonderful movies, wonderful books, wonderful romantic tales, but it's not exactly true. I mean, I think there's a broad understanding that two of the biggest factors that led to American independence and later Texan independence weren't citizen uprisings so much as they were uh, uh, the support of foreign powers, in the American case from the French and in the Texas case from the Americans, as well as simple dint of supply lines and reinforcements from the British and from the Mexicans, you know, crossing the Atlantic in the 1770s and 1780s, crossing northward from Mexico, uh, Mexico City up to Texas in the 1830s was a harrowing passage and played just as much a role, if not more, uh, uh, than any other reality on the ground at the time. Again, it's a wonderful story to think that citizens can, can rise up and overthrow a government uh, uh, bent on tyranny, but it hasn't played out in American or Texan history like just your last question, you know, there is no military force on Earth comparable to what the U.S. currently has right now. There are no concerns that the U.S. would have about supply lines within the U.S. We're not crossing oceans. We're not crossing hemispheres. You know, I understand that people who own these AR-15s and these high-powered weapons think that they could fight out some kind of guerrilla warfare, and to an extent they could. I think that there's every reason to look back at recent history to see why that would not be the case. Any kind of recent uprising, uh, you know, if we see in southern Mexico, if we see in Chechnya, if we see play out uh, across any other kind of uh, uh, guerrilla uprising domestically, if you don't have support from foreign powers and if you don't have supply line distance to lean on, you don't have a shot. Um. And no pun intended, I think, in that last word either. (laughs) (laughs) No no pun intended whatsoever. We've been speaking with uh, Casey Michelle. He's a reporter for Think Progress. You can find his story about this over at thinkprogress.org. It's called The Myth That Civilian Gun Ownership Prevents Tyranny. Casey, hey, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, talking about it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Next on the Mike McEntee Show, the race for Minnesota governor on the Republican side. Our favorite analyst, Jack Rice, gives us his take on it.
Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. Recently, I got to sit down with former CIA officer and political analyst Jack Rice for a TV interview. Now, you can watch it on Southwest Community TV this month. The show is called Democratic Visions and is produced courtesy of They call themselves suburban lefties throughout the Southwest Community Television. Democratic Visions can be seen on select cable systems and is on a YouTube channel, too. But Jack and I covered a bunch of topics. One I'd like to share with you here. We start where I asked Jack about the Republican race for Minnesota governor. Tim Pawlenty, former governor, just got back, just got into the race. He put out recently a video, very much anti-immigrant, which seems to be a different tact for him from where he's been before. And then on the other side, you've got the in, the candidates that are probably going to be endorsed by the Republican Party for that race, because uh, Tim Pawlenty may not get it. I mean, you've got Jeff Johnson, who's leading the pack, but he's lost several times in that uh, in that race. Are, are the Republicans trying to align themselves more with Trump, what, what Pawlenty's doing as, as in hope of having an impact in the 2018 race, or is it just picking issues, or what's going on there? When I think about the leadership in the Republican Party here in Minnesota, and frankly across the country, so I can I can take you across the eastern seaboard as an example, and even in the south, heck, there was a recent race in in Arizona uh, on on an issue like this too. I think what's frequently happening is the Republican leadership seems to be sticking their finger in their mouth and putting it up in the air, trying to figure out exactly where the people want them to go so they can lead them. So they're trying to figure out what the answer is. But rather than actually knowing what the answer is. And so that's where they are. And you're seeing a lot of people, some of them new, some of them who have no experience, they're neophytes, just like Donald Trump, really, who are stepping into the field. I would have to say that Tim Pawlenty is different than that. I mean, he surprises me in a sense, and, I, and I've known Tim for many years. And, and Tim was, I mean, he was, he was a John McCain supporter. His philosophical view was quite a bit different. I mean, one of the reasons that he was able to run uh, early on and gain some traction is I remember him talking about growing up in South St. Paul and his, his father uh, uh, was, worked every single day. He was this blue-collar guy and where he came from and what he was doing and how he worked himself up and all of the things that he was able to do. It was much, much different than this anti-immigrant sort of red meat uh, approach, almost this angry Republican now, which is not what he was. And so for him to sort of pivot into this new role is going to be real interesting. But what I can tell you is that historically, what we know is that generally, no, not generally, always, Minnesotans don't like to bring back people who've already had the job. Nobody has ever received the nomination again. The only person who ever ran and tried to get it, there was one guy, and, and Arnie Carlson, yeah. and he still didn't get it. And that's something that the Republicans remember. That's something that Tim Pawlenty remembers, too. So he has to rebrand himself, because if he comes back as he was, he won't get this. He may still not get it. I don't think he can come back as he was, because essentially the Democrats have found, out, found a way to rebrand him anyhow. I mean take a look at what he has been doing for the last four or five years. He has been the guy who's been working for the bankers on Wall Street. It's very hard to come back after take, being a lobbyist and doing that, saying, I'm for the little guy. I'm for you. I'm for, I'm for working class Minnesotans. When you've been taking money and lobbying for the bankers to push back on all the regulations that, you know, 
basically it pulled us out of the crisis that we hit in 2008. I, but I that's but wait, that's the Republicans right now too. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the entire Republican Party, they are using a piece of that. This idea of saying you're getting getting in the way of business doing what it is that business does. Let America do what they do. Let America let business do what it's supposed to do. The problem is, is it ignores exactly the crisis that led to where we were, the tanking of the the economy at a level that we haven't seen certainly in our lifetimes as well. And you're starting to see a. a stripping away and a chiseling away of the meager protections that were in place before and the pitiful protections that were put in place subsequently, those are being stripped away now too. And it seems that people have an, an enormously short men, uh, memory on these issues and it could have been so much worse. Um, the Democratic Party is not immune to this either. Um, no, 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 they're not. I, you, you actually mentioned this idea that uh, look what Tim Pawlenty was doing on Wall Street. Come on. I mean, that was one of the questions this schizophrenic approach the Dems have. They have the same issue, this idea of are they going to be the Bernie Sanders side of this? Are they going to be the Hillary Clinton side of this? I mean, I mean, Hillary Clinton was shockingly close with Wall Street. Mm -hmm. A lot of those issues were true. And so if we look at that piece of it, who are the Dems now, too? And they're still trying to determine. I think they're all together because all they all know is they're, it's easy to be anti-something rather than pro-something else. Because you can all say, I don't like that Trump guy, but what are we? And I think that's something that Democrats really have to articulate well, because it's not just about saying, hate that guy, it's about loving me. Up next on the Mike McEntee Show, Mike Mullen from City Pages. He's been culling some of the worst of the worst ideas that actually became bills at the Minnesota legislature. We'll talk to him next. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show. The legislature has a lot of weighty issues to deal with. Many that don't even get a hearing for sometimes political reasons. Some don't get a hearing or much traction because, well, they're just bad ideas. Mike Mullen from City Pages has been calling some of the worst of the worst ideas that actually became bills. Some of these are flips. Some of them are dangerous. All became a bill putting it one step closer to becoming a law. Welcome to the show, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with... Where do these ideas come from? Who comes up with this stuff? Uh, that is a, a pretty good question, and it's honestly one that uh, is not always obvious. Um, I, I know for a fact that a lot of legis legislators will enter a bill because they have one constituent who has asked for something and has brought them an issue and said, this is important to me. And the legislator will, for whatever reason, um, you know, and it's, sometimes it's an interest group, but honestly, sometimes it's they have, you know, one person who's asking for something, and they say, well, what's the harm in writing the bill? Um, other times, it's it's uh, it seems pretty obvious that it's a legislator themselves who has a pet issue, you know, something that they're interested in, and and uh, fortunately, actually, the, the rest of the legislature is not interested in. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the origin of, of bad bills is not always obvious. And I should mention that uh, we've, we've got a list here of nine, or nine bills that you've uh, published in City Pages. And uh, these are, these are, this is bipartisanship because there's both parties here have bills that uh, we're going to talk about. I'm going to you. These are not the real names of the bills, but I'm going to give what right. the title you gave. And you can explain what this is. The Porn Free Phone Act. What is that about? Yes. 
Yeah, so that that's one that, um, you know, some of these on their face, uh, you can just look at it and say, well, this is, um, logistically, it's impossible. So what this is, is there's a, um, a socially conservative legislator named Peggy Bennett, um, who represents Albert Lee. She's a Republican. She, um, and actually, there are a good number of co-authors on this bill. She is not alone on this. Um, what the bill would do is that if anyone, if anyone was to, uh, the way the language reads, if anyone was selling or manufacturing a device that included the Internet, so this is, you know, basically any computer or, or smartphone, um, that device would have to have some tool built into it that could block uh, what's referred to as, quote, obscene material. Um, and anyone who's, you know, been anywhere near the Internet uh, knows what it's referring to. Uh, and uh, so that, first of all, I think would make Minnesota uh, an outlier of, of American states in that you can't sell a smartphone unless it's got a tool built in. Um, but the bill goes beyond that, where it also wants uh, the people who are manufacturing or selling these things. I mean, at that point, I think you're asking Apple um, to, uh, to set up uh, a call center where people could call in and report any obscene material that they have found, um, which is, uh, again, this is one that when you look at it, you say, well, how would this even be possible um, that, that you could implement this? So maybe even the people who signed on to it uh, wouldn't, don't imagine a future where people are calling, you know, a massive help desk at Apple and reporting that they've found porn on the internet, um, which they would. <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but yes, it seems one that, uh, was far-fetched to begin with. Yeah. I am shocked, shocked that there is porn on the internet. Uh, that, that's right. a very Im- important, uh, revelation that we got from that bill. Uh, there's some of these yeah. here that actually, uh, some constituencies got very upset that they're being introduced. Uh, this next one, the crank choice voting act, again, not the real name, but tell me what that's about. Yeah, this is this is another of these. Um, we saw a lot of these uh, in 2017. I think uh, they're going to be around as long as there's this rural-urban divide in the legislature. Uh, this is something uh, from a, a Republican senator who actually represents North Branch, um, where he wants to. He and, and others. This is a, a you know popular proposal among some uh, Republicans. They want to uh, ban ranked choice voting. And what you'll find is the uh, people who want this, who want to ban ranked choice voting, don't have it in their district. This is not something that's facing their constituents. This is, uh, if people remember, uh, uh, it's called preemption or, or was referred to that in some cases where, uh, for example, Minneapolis had a ban on plastic bags, which the Republican majority then stripped out and made it so that you couldn't ban plastic bags. Um, so it's an example of, I guess, just you know, picking a fight with um, with the metro because Minneapolis and St. Paul have ranked choice voting. Uh, other um, suburbs within the Twin Cities metro area um, either have it or are considering it. Um, the people who want to block them from doing that really have nothing to do with you know city council or mayoral votes in those cities. Um, so it's hard to think of why they would want to regulate it other than just to piss people off, I guess. Yeah, it's the uh, local government is great if you're a Republican until local government is doing something that you don't like. Uh, <laughs> right, right. Your local which, government oh, is not great. Yeah. 
Um, here's another one, and again, this is, this falls under the uh, thing that gets some people upset. This is the V for Vendetta Scared Me Bill. I love your title. Tell me what's it about. Uh, yeah, this is, so um, I'm going to blank on exactly when it happened, but it might have been over this past summer. Um, there was an event which was sort of a, maybe it was fall, uh, there was an event which was kind of a rally for Trump supporters at the state capitol, and what happened was uh, some, you know, just probably mainstream, maybe a little bit uh, right of mainstream Republicans had a rally inside the Capitol uh, where there were speeches in favor of President Trump. Uh, outside the Capitol, there was this very weird, ugly scene playing out where there were, you know, um, people who were combined Trump fandom with uh with alt-right or, you know, fascistic or neo-Nazi leanings. Um, uh, and, and they were, and, you know, there, there's maybe some dozens of them, and they were confronted by uh, the Antifa left-wing protesters. Um, and of the two of them, <laughs> the, uh, the right-wing group, uh, many of them were, as, as one of the Republicans who was there described them, many of them were heavily armed, um, and they seemed pretty, pretty aggressive themselves. Um, but uh, so Matt Dean uh, was there on that same day, and he looked at that scene, and he uh, wrote a very critical uh, follow-up Facebook post about the Antifa protesters, who he called punks and thugs. Um, and one thing that is uh, somewhat common among among those protesters, maybe not common, but some of them choose to use either a bandana or some kind of a, a mask to hide their face, um, you know hide their identity, maybe because they think they're going to wind up on some sort of uh, list or, or something like that. Um, so what Dean's bill would do is make it so that it would be a crime, actually, to demonstrate if you uh, blocked your face with something. He, his, the language of the bill says that it would be a crime to, to demonstrate uh, hiding your identity using a mask or otherwise. Um, so this seems like a pretty direct um, callback to, uh, to that that protest where apparently Matt's biggest beef was that some people you couldn't see their face. Um, hmm. Yeah. I, I can see that uh, the protesters though would come up with a way say, this isn't a protest. It's a Halloween celebration. that just happens to be in <laughs> July. So, so get over it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Th- this next one is, is kind of under what the heck are you thinking? Uh, it's called the, you called it the cute little shooters bill. Tell us about that. Right. Um, so this this will um, I, I think some people might remember there was recently you know kind of controversy uh, derision a lot of joking honestly when uh, Wisconsin moved to lower the age of uh, the hunting age to uh, nine I believe and with some exceptions you know you can hunt even even at a lower age and this is for for big game for deer um, so you have the idea of uh, of a nine year old with a hunting rifle and, and trying to take a deer, I guess. Um, and, uh, there are, uh, at least a couple legislators in Minnesota who want to lower it to eight. Uh, so apparently we looked at Wisconsin being made fun of nationally, uh, for, for having nine year old hunters. And we thought we could, we could beat that. Um, we can go even lower. Um, and this is, and I don't, you know, I grew up with people who hunt and started hunting at a pretty young age. Um, I think they would say eight is uh, much too young to be uh, giving kids hunting licenses, um, and yet 
there, there we are. I mean, if you have boys for uh, for kids, you know how dangerous and destructive they can be just with their hands <laughs> in your house at eight. So give them a gun. And yeah, I, I can see where that, that would be a problem. There's yeah, another one yeah. here. Uh, th- this one, again, is uh, it's, it kind of ties into, gee, can't we do enough for the rich? This is called the loophole in one bill. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, that is um, something that, I, this happens with a few of these, but this is one where I had to keep reading it to make sure that this was <laughs> what I thought it was. This would be a sales tax exemption. Um, this is a bill introduced by a guy, Representative Joe Hoppe, who is a Republican representing Chaska. Um, this would be a sales tax exemption for purchases of tickets for admittance to major golf tournaments. Um, and the bill goes on to list that that would include things like the U.S. Open, the PGA Championship, uh, the uh, I think I think at least a couple of the women's major tournaments are on there, and the Ryder Cup, which um, has recently been here. Uh, it's of all the tax cuts that we need. I think that the people who are first of all interested in going to major golf tournaments uh, and can afford to do it uh, are some of the least <laughs> needy people in the state. Um, so the idea that, that we would be carving out an exemption to help them, um, I, I would hope that they, when we make the list of who needs a tax break, they would be near the bottom of the list. But um, And yet they're on Joe Hoppy's list. Yeah, I don't see a lot of people out at the interstate exits uh, with signs that say, we'll work for golf tickets. So Right, yeah, right. Get me into the, to the Masters. <laughs> this, this next one, though, is actually a, uh, a very thorny issue that the legislature has been dealing with, which is, you know, the the fight that they always have at the end of session, it seems like, between the governor and the legislature, and there was a big court fight over this about, uh, you know, the budget and, you know, possibly shutting down. That's been that's been a threat here, I think, almost every biennium uh, for the last, mm-hmm. uh, you know, decade or so. And you mm-hmm. you said somebody's come up with the, you're calling it the Stop Me Before I Legislate Again Act. Tell us about it. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this is an idea that there are a few different versions out there, um, and uh, and you know, scarily, some of the people who are in favor of this are are quite powerful legislators. Um, these would be bills which would basically be continuations, so uh, that if the legislature uh, cannot make an agreement with the governor, they would continue funding the government uh, at the at current you know existing levels uh, without a new budget being passed. So, uh, and anyone who's paid close attention, you know, on first thought, you might go, well, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea because, you know, they so often almost do uh, come to a shutdown, you know, standstill point, and uh, this would at least give some certainty. Um, I would counter that, uh, that if you had this in place and if they didn't have to pass a budget, they probably never would. Um, I think that the only reason why they do is the actual threat of... Uh, of, of a shutdown and, and, you know, the embarrassment of, of what that would be. We then become, you know, not for nothing, Minnesota then becomes a national embarrassment and, and people are writing that we can't pass a budget. Um, and I think that pressure keeps them working. Uh, you know, a lot of times the work that they do is not very admirable, but it at least keeps them at the table. And I think if they had the option of just saying, well, screw it, we just can't come up with a deal, they would just walk. And, uh, and honestly, if you're someone who has interests in a certain area, you're an advocate for something, you have something where you want more funding for something, 
the idea of them having this safety net where they don't even have to pass any budget at all. They can just leave things where they are. Um, it gets very depressing, and it basically means that we could permanently have one budget <laughs> that ever passes, and then they, they can uh, just leave it at that until, uh, until I guess, someone comes up with an idea for something they all like, but that's never happened in history. So, uh, so yes, I think this is probably a bad idea, but, but like I said, it's, it's one that um, is actually getting serious consideration from some people. We're talking with Mike Mullen from City Pages. He's put together a list of, well, some crazy and bad ideas that have been bills this legislative session. We haven't had time to go through them all. You can go over to citypages.com to, to take a look at the full list. But, I have, Mike, I have to ask you here before we go, what happens to most of these bills? Uh, obviously, we these haven't become law yet, but should we be worried that in the future something might like this might actually become law? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, people who watch the Capitol very closely know that— uh, you can have something like like one of these, which seems like a very obscure, off-the-radar issue. And uh, and most of these are not going to get, um, have not, and will not get uh, debated in a full committee hearing where everyone comes in and testifies and, and maybe laughs at the bill author. Um, but the way that a lot of legislation does get passed now is things that were introduced, you know, weeks ago or months ago, suddenly come back right at the end and they sneak into a, what seems like an unrelated bill. A lot of times it's a, it's a spending bill or it's a, you know, some kind of bill that is otherwise popular or seen as necessary. So even these really obscure bad ideas, um, they're kind of never dead until the session is over. So, uh, yeah, if, if you've heard of a bad idea and you think that it's dead, it is actually never dead until the session is, is finally ended. Yeah, I think they're put into what's called omnibus bills, which I think is Latin yep. for throw you under the bus. Is uh, <laughs> or a lot of a lot of stuff gets thrown in there at the last moment. Mike Mullen uh, from City Pages, you can find us writing over at citypages.com. Appreciate you spending time with us today, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. A reminder, if you're interested in the legislature, you want to see if any of those bad bills get anywhere, you can watch it live every day until adjournment. That's May 21st on The Uptake. That's theuptake.org. And remember, The Uptake only exists because you help it to exist. Support it. It's a nonprofit organization. It's a tax-deductible donation. Go over to theuptake.org. Hit the Donate button. Your 5 bucks, 25 bucks does make a big difference. That's it again for today's show. I'm Mike McEntee. We'll be back tomorrow. And, Mom, thanks for listening.